Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke uh, chapter 16, verses 10 through 13. Uh, The verses which immediately follow uh, the somewhat strange and uh, um, unknown parable that we looked at last Sunday. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 800. And 75. As I said last Sunday, we looked at the parable uh, immediately preceding these verses, the, the parable that is known as the parable of the dishonest manager. And it is a strange parable. For in this parable, Jesus points at a thief. He, he points at a money manager who was caught stealing from his boss and who, after he was caught, proceeded to steal even more. So Jesus points at this thief and says to his disciples, you know, you really ought to be more like him. It's strange, as I said. It's a, it's somewhat bizarre, but, but as bizarre as it seems on the surface, as we saw last Sunday, the main point is really Fairly straightforward. The main point of the parable is simply this. Jesus wants his disciples to be more shrewd in the way they live here and now. When Jesus points at this thief, he is, he is not commending his dishonesty. He is not encouraging us to become thieves, but rather he is commending his shrewdness. He's, he's commending the way he used what that was at his disposal to prepare for his Future and, and Jesus is saying, if even an unrighteous man, if even a thief knows to prepare for the future, how much more ought the children of light to live with eternity in view? How much more ought they to have an eye on the future as they live in the present? Jesus is calling us to be shrewd. But what I want you to see this morning is that the shrewdness that Jesus is commending, the the shrewdness that he is calling us to have, while it has huge transformational implications for really every area of our life, and we, we considered some of those last Sunday, while it has huge implications for every area of our life, here, in this particular parable, and in the teaching that follows it, Jesus has one area of our lives in particular in mind. Here in this parable, Jesus is focusing... On money. He's focusing on the way that we handle our wealth, what is called mammon. We see this in verse 9 when Jesus refers to the unrighteous wealth that we have been entrusted with. And as we saw last Sunday, that, that term unrighteous wealth, while it's, it's difficult, it most likely simply refers to the, the, the wealth of this present evil age, to the, the wealth, the material wealth that we are entrusted with in this life. And this becomes even more clear in the teaching that follows, verses 10 through 13, the verses that are before us this morning. So we want to give our careful attention to what Jesus has to say this morning to us about what it means to live with an eternal perspective, not just in life in general, but particularly with relation to our money. Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 10. I'm actually going to begin reading with verse 9 uh, and read through verse 13. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. And I tell you, Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. 
If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon our study here this morning. Father God, this is your word. And you have given it to us that by it we might have new life, and by it we might be nurtured to grow up in our salvation. And so we ask now, Father, that your Spirit would attend the the reading and the preaching of your Word, and that he would cause it to bear fruit, Father. That he would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that he would give us hearts to receive, that we might be renewed and transformed, that we might be equipped and empowered to do all that you have called us to do to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Money. It's one of those things that we are hesitant to talk about in church. Pastors, at least some pastors, are hesitant to talk about money because we don't want people to think that we are only after their wallets. You see, there are some pastors who are after people's wallets. There are some pastors who who are in the ministry for the sake of financial gain. And and we, uh, the pastors who are hesitant to talk about money, we want to distance ourselves from them as much as possible. We, we don't want to be associated with them, and so we're hesitant to talk about money. And of course, it isn't only pastors who are hesitant to talk about money in church. The, the people, uh, you, uh, don't generally like it much either. I know a pastor who had a small group of guys in his church who he met with every week, and this went on for, for over a year. And then one day, the pastor suggested that it was time to take up the topic of money, to talk about how they were actually handling their wealth. And one by one, every guy in the group dropped out, and it wasn't long before the group simply disbanded. They simply didn't want their pastor talking to them about their money. I've seen it. I understand it. As a pastor, I don't like talking about money, and as a person, I don't like being talked to about Money, But Jesus talked about money a lot. According to Randy Alcorn, the author of The Treasure Principle, 15% of everything that Jesus said during his earthly ministry, or at least 15% of everything that's recorded for us in the Gospels, relates to money. It relates to wealth. It relates to treasure and to riches. So the obvious question is why? Why did Jesus talk about money so much? Why did Jesus insist on raising such an uncomfortable topic so often? Alcorn puts the answer this way. He says, Jesus puts such an emphasis on money and possessions because there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. We may try to divorce our faith from our finances, but God sees them as inseparable. God sees what we do with our money as inseparable from what's the true content of our faith. Where our heart is, there are treasures. Where our treasure is, there are heart is. Jesus understands this inseparable connection, and so therefore, he talks about money 
a lot. And this parable and the teaching that follows is one of those places where Jesus is talking about money. And so if you are a visitor here this morning, no, I didn't pick this topic because we have some sort of campaign going on. Rather, I picked this topic because we're working our way through Luke. And this is where we happen to be. And, and can't just skip over. We have to talk about it because Jesus did. Jesus talked about money a lot, and this is one of the places. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to listen carefully to what Jesus says. I want us to try to understand the principles that Jesus is setting before us. And then I want us to ask how those apply to us today. How do we live this out? Uh, How do we live out what Jesus is, is teaching us? And finally, I want to ask how we can actually learn to do what this text calls us to do. So first, just understanding. How do we understand what Jesus says? Let's just look at the words he speaks, beginning in verse 10. Jesus begins by saying, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. If you're faithful in a little, you will also be faithful in much. Now, this is not the way that we always think. There are many people today who think that if they just had more, then they could be more faithful to what God calls them to do with their, their money. They, they think that their faithfulness somehow depends upon what they, they have. They are convinced that if they won the lottery, they would become the most generous people in the world, that they would be able to share their wealth with so many good people, that if God would just make them a little bit richer, then they would be able to, to give away more. That's the way that we think. We, we think that faithfulness depends on what we have, but Jesus says that's not the way that it actually works. Faithfulness does not depend upon what we have. It does not depend upon what has been entrusted to us. Rather, faithfulness determines what we do with what we do have, whether that be much or whether that be little. If you are a faithful person, and think about what that term means for a second. What does it mean to be faithful? What is a faithful person? Well, a faithful person is a person who has faith, a person who believes the truth and walks in accord with that truth. You see, in in the New Testament, the word faith and the word faith are actually the same word. You know, from from a New Testament perspective, the two cannot be divorced. To believe is to walk in accord with. You cannot be faithful without having faith, and you cannot have true faith without being faithful. You can believe the propositions, and the scriptures tell us that even Satan does that. Satan knows the truth, but he doesn't have faith. He doesn't believe it. He doesn't walk in accord with it. He doesn't love it. In fact, he hates the truth. But a faithful person knows the truth, loves the truth, and walks in accord with the truth. So so a faithful person is one who lives and acts in accord with the truth. And one who has faith, one who is faithful, will be faithful with whatever they have, with whatever has been entrusted to them. If they are a servant of the king, they will serve the king with the opportunities that are given to them, with the resources at their disposal. They will do, to use an Old Testament phrase, they will do what their hand finds to do. I love that phrase in the Old Testament. It it simply means you don't know what God's going to give you to do today. But do it. As you get up, as you go through your day, do what he gives you to do today. Do what your hand finds to do today and do it with the faithfulness that resides in your heart. Because if you are a faithful person, you will be faithful no matter what opportunities, no matter what resources are at your disposal, whether they be little or whether they be much. So a faithful person, one who is faithful in very little, will be faithful in much. But of course, the opposite is also true. I have an uncle who is a high school uh, history teacher. 
And as you know, history teachers, especially at small Christian schools, don't make a lot of of money. But he's always said, I know why God didn't make me rich. And he would say this repeatedly. He said, I know why God didn't make me rich. All you have to do is see what I do when I get an extra 20 bucks. He said, when I get an extra 20 bucks, what do I do? He said, he said, I immediately spend it on myself or I immediately waste it. He said, it's no wonder God hasn't given me more. I can't be trusted with it. <laughs> and so he says, I know. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is making. Notice how he, how he finishes that first verse. He says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Now, dishonest is a harsh word. We are willing to admit that, that we're not generous. But dishonest? You know, that's a little bit hard for us to swallow. That's a, that's a harsh word. What does Jesus mean by dishonest? Well, again, you just have to think about what the word means. Just as faithful means one who has faith and lives in accord with that faith, to be dishonest, not only in what you say, but what you do, means to be out of accord with the truth. And so to understand what truth we are out of accord with, we have to understand the principle of stewardship. You see, the manager from this parable is actually a steward. He is one who has been entrusted with the wealth of another. He doesn't own it. But of course, that's not true just of the manager in the parable. That is true of, of all of us. We are all stewards. We are owners of nothing. It is God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It is God who is the maker of heaven and earth. It is, it is God who by right looks at all of creation. As, as Kuiper said, he looks at all of creation and does not exempt one square inch, but over all of it says, this is mine. It belongs to him, but yet he has entrusted it to those whom he has made his image bearers. We were made to represent God in the ruling and the governing and the caring for creation. We are stewards of what God has made. We are owners of nothing. So what does that mean? That has implications, does it not? If we are stewards, then we are to use it for the glory and the good of the one to whom it belongs. This is exactly what the manager in the parable did not do. The manager in the parable was wasting his master's possessions. How? He was was wasting them by using them as if they were his own. By by using them for his own benefit. By using them to advance his own interest without regard to his master's good. And so Jesus calls him a dishonest or even an unrighteous, maybe even a harsher word. Uh, I'm not quite sure why we get it translated as dishonest, but it's, it's, it's actually unrighteous. He's an unrighteous manager. He is acting out of accord with the truth. He's acting as if his master's possessions are his own. And when we do the same thing with that which has been entrusted to us, when we act as if it is our own, when we use it for our own interest, with disregard for for who our true master is, we are dishonest, unrighteous managers. We are using the wealth of another As if it were our own. And Jesus says, if you are dishonest with little, then you will be dishonest with much. And this has implications. This has consequences. This brings us to Jesus' next statement. So he he lays out the principle first. That that faithfulness or dishonesty is not a a function of how much we have, but it is an attribute of our hearts. 
and, and our hearts determine what we actually do with what we have. And then he says this in verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, and remember what that refers to. That refers to the wealth of this age, the, the material wealth of this earth, what Jesus elsewhere calls the treasures of this earth. If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true? And our translations insert riches just for clarity. But who will, who will insult you? If you, haven't been, if you haven't been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? Who will entrust to you the true eternal riches of the age to come? As I said, Jesus is here using the same categories that he uses elsewhere in his Sermon on the Mount. He, he there warns his disciples not to lay up treasures on earth, but rather to, to lay up treasures in, in heaven. And he's using that same distinction here. He said, if you have not been faithful with the treasures of this earth, who will entrust to you the true treasures of heaven? But how can that be? How can, how can it be that what we do here with, with wealth affects what we inherit in the age to come? Doesn't that sound an awful lot like salvation by work? You know, it, it just it doesn't resonate with, with our modern evangelical minds. And I agree, it does sound that way, at least to our modern ears, but that is not at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that we somehow earn our salvation by, by the way we handle our checkbook or by the, the way we use our, our credit cards or by the way we invest our, our paycheck. That is not what Jesus is saying. Elsewhere, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that we could not possibly earn our salvation. In fact, he tells another parable about an unprofitable servant. He says, listen, even when you do everything that is asked of you, and even when you do it perfectly, you, you are still an unprofitable servant. Even if you could be perfect from, from conception to death, God would, still wouldn't owe you anything apart from his grace. You can't put God in your debt. He is the maker of heaven and earth. Even when you do everything, you are still an unprofitable servant. So it's not at all tenable that God is here suggesting, or that Jesus is here suggesting, that we have to earn our salvation. But rather, he's coming back to that connection. That connection that, that Alcorn talked about. That, that connection between what we do and what we believe, between our actions and our hearts. He is saying that there is an absolute connection between what we do with our money and where our hearts are. Our works demonstrate or show our faith. If we are faithful, if we are men of faith, then that will be shown in the way that we handle our money. If we are not men of faith, if we are unbelievers, if, if, if our profession is false or vain, then that too will be shown. Of course, this isn't a perfect correlation. Even those who have true faith sometimes live according to the passions of the former ignorance. Why we had a confession of sin at the beginning of our worship service. We weakly acknowledge that, that we fall short of what we are called to. That we do not live in accord with, with the gospel that we have believed. And yet, even though the correlation is not perfect, it is real. And it is substantial. And it will be seen. We will live out in the course of our daily lives, not perfectly, but, but really and substantially, the faith that resides in our hearts. And therefore, that means that if we use our money as if this world is all that matters, as if this world is what matters most, 
as if this is what we treasure beyond all else, as if, as if our greatest good is here and now. If that is the way we live, then it shows that we do not have true faith. It shows that we do not truly believe the gospel, and it shows then that we do not have an inheritance in the age to come. And so profession is important. What we say with our mouth matters. We, we are supposed to profess our faith. We are supposed to make that faith public. When we, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we, we invite people who have made public their faith to come to the table. You cannot keep your faith private. Jesus said, you must confess me before men. Profession matters. What we say with our lips matters, but it is not sufficient by itself. For there is the possibility of a false profession. There is the possibility of a, of a vain faith. And James tells us that a faith does not, that does not work, or to use Paul's language, a, a faith that does not express itself in love is a dead faith that cannot save. And Jesus knows that one of the places where we have the hardest time faking it Jesus knows one of the places where where what's truly going on in our heart is is revealed most clearly is in relationship to money. What do we do with our money? It shows what's going on in our hearts. And this is the point that Jesus drives home in verse 13. Notice what he says. He says, No one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now I know some will object that Jesus has maybe overstated his case a little bit here. You know, really? Do we really have to hate the other? You know, that seems to be going a little bit too far. We know people who have two jobs. We know people who, who work for two employers. And, and they don't hate the one and love the other. You know, maybe they may not be too fond of either one, actually. But, but you know, they, they, they can work for two. Or maybe when you were a kid, you played for two sports teams. Or maybe you have kids now who play for two sports teams. And they don't, they don't hate the one and love of the other. Yes, there's sometimes conflict. Yes, it can be hard to, to work out. Uh, but but we, can, we can serve two, we think. But when we start to think that way, we are misunderstanding the very nature of a servant. You see, when you're deciding which master you're going to serve, you're not really a servant at all. You are the master. You're the one who is in control. And that's not the way that God works. God is a master who demands absolute, total allegiance all the time. A servant is never free to do his own thing. A servant owes everything he does. Everything that is at his disposal, all of his energy, it all goes to the glory. Whatever you do, we're told, do it in the name of the Lord because he is your master. Even when you eat or you drink, you do it to the glory of your God. Everything is to him. God does not allow for rivals. He does not allow for for partial service. If you are a disciple of Christ, there is no time when you are free to serve another master. Everything you do, all the time, without exception, must be in the name of the Lord. And therefore, you cannot possibly serve two masters. Because God demands all of you. He says everything, all of it, all of you. All of your resources, it is mine. It is, it is at my disposal. You are my bondservant. And if you seek to serve another master, you will be despising me. If you seek to serve another master, even part of the time, you will be hating 
me. You cannot serve God and any other master. You especially cannot serve God and money. Money is a tool to be used in the service of your true master, not a master to be served. So how do we work this out? What does this mean for us? What are some some ways that we can think about what this actually looks like in, in practical terms? What does it mean for us to be faithful in the unrighteous wealth that has been entrusted to us? And make no mistake, a very large sum of unrighteous wealth has been entrusted to us. You know, people sometimes say that we are, you know, among the, 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 the 1% or even the 0.1% of human history. We are the richest people who have ever walked the face of the earth. And, and sometimes those comparisons can, can begin to um, be a little askew, I think. All right? we, we do have to remember that, you know, rich in the Old Testament meant that, you know, you weren't worried uh, about your future. You, you were set in some ways. You, know? you, you, you had your estate and it was going to generate income. To be poor was to be you know, living paycheck to paycheck. And there are a lot of people today who make a lot of money who are still nevertheless living paycheck to paycheck. And so if you don't feel like the rich, I don't want to slap your hand and tell you to get a, you know, a, a better perspective. In some sense, that's true. In some sense, it doesn't matter. Because what did Jesus say? Whether you have little or whether you have much, you're called to be faithful. <laughs> So whether you are willing to acknowledge that you are historically rich or whether you sort of push against that a little bit, I don't really care. (laughs) What I care is what you're called to is to be faithful with what you have, whether you regard it as little or whether you regard it as much. So what does that mean for us? How do we do that? How do we be faithful with what we have? What does it mean to serve God with our money rather than serving our money as if it were God? And I want to give to you just a few principles under two headings, two main headings. One, uh, what does it mean to be faithful in how we get our wealth, how we acquire wealth? And then two, how are we faithful in how we spend the wealth that we have? What what do do the scriptures teach us about living with an eternal perspective and, and how we get our wealth and then in how we spend the wealth that we have? And these are necessarily going to be bullet points, so... um, we could expand, any one of these could be a full sermon, but we're going to uh, sort of go through them quickly. And the first thing I have to say um, about how we get our wealth is simply this. Being faithful with our money means doing honest work honestly. All right? It means doing honest work. First, think about what that means. What is, it, what is honest work? Well, well, God is the one who invented work, and in the beginning, work was a blessing. All right? But what was work for? Work was for establishing the kingdom of God and the good of our neighbor. You know, those, those foundational commitments of love God, love neighbor. They, they define for us work. What is to the glory of God and what is to the good of our neighbor? This is what Paul tells the thief. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him do something useful. Right? Do something useful. Work is meant to be useful. It's not just anything that can make money. There are many things that can make money that are not useful. There are good, many things that, that can make money that are not you know, open to the believer as a way to pursue a career. And I could give you examples, but I'm not going to do it here this morning. But if you, if you want me to give you a list, I'll give you one. I did it in a small group the other day, and it um, sort of made some people laugh. But you know, there are certain jobs we're not going to do, but we're going to do honest work, that which is useful, and we're going to do it honestly. We're going to do it in accord with the, the, the commandments, the, the laws that God has given us about how we are to relate to one another. We're going to have honest scales. The, the Bible makes a big deal about that. Have honest scales. Don't cheat your customers. You know, and don't cheat your boss. Do honest work honestly. 
And not only are we to do honest work honestly, but the second thing I have to say is that you are to do all of the work that you've been given to do honestly. See, when we think about vocation, when we think about work, what do we think of? We think of our careers. We think of that which which gives us a paycheck. But the truth is, that is not your only vocation. That is not your only calling. Yes, I am a pastor. And pastor is the vocation that pays me. I'm very thankful that you guys give me a paycheck so that I can be a pastor, so that I can preach God's word, so that I can minister to his his church. But I have other vocations as well. I am a husband. I am a father. I am a son. I am a brother. I am a neighbor. I am a friend. I am a citizen. These are all vocations and they all place certain demands on me. They're all certain. They all require a certain amount of work. Work that I am to do to the glory of God and the good of my neighbor. And if we focus exclusively on doing the work that produces money to the neglect of the other callings that we have been given, then we are failing to understand what it means to serve God with all our lives. And we are allowing money to dictate. We are allowing money to control. This is what I must do because this makes money. No, we must do all the work that God has given us to do. And we must do it Honestly, and in doing this, we must not allow money to dictate or control our lives. Yes, you must do something so that you can eat your own bread. Again, that's part of the command. Think about what Paul says. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him do something useful with his hands. Why? So that he might eat his own bread. You are commanded to do something, to make a living. And and particularly the younger generation needs to kind of hear this. Because especially when we're young, we think, well, I'm just going to follow my heart. I'm going to do what I love. And, you know, if other people have to pay the bills, so be it. No, no. You know, God says, do something useful. Make a living. Whether or not it pays you does matter. But it is not the controlling emphasis. We don't decide our careers. We don't decide what we're going to do with our opportunities based upon how much money we can make. But rather, what controls us is the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. I, I heard a story this week on... One of the blogs that I uh, subscribed to, and they were telling the story about a, a woman who was, you know, extraordinarily gifted, did extraordinary well in school, and her, her professors were all advising her, you know, you could go become a high-powered lawyer, or you could become a, you know, a high-end executive, and, and, and she said, no, I, I want to teach. <laughs> and they're like, teach? <laughs> you know, you'll make like one-tenth of what you could make in other careers. And she says, I know, but this, what I've been gifted to do is what I have a passion to do is what I want to do, and money doesn't control me. It seemed like a foolish decision from the eyes of her professors. It seemed like a foolish decision from the eyes of the world. And yet she said, this is what I want to do. And so when we are acquiring our wealth, what do we do? We do honest work honestly. We do all the work that we've been given to do honestly. And we do not allow money to control or, or dictate, but rather we seek to live to the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. But then when we have wealth, what do we do with it? That's the second question. How do we spend our money faithfully? And again, just a few principles I think need to be stated here. First, being faithful means not spending more than we have. It means not living beyond our means. And again, that may seem obvious, but it needs to be said. We live in a world where, where debt runs rampant, where, where you know, just about everyone is piling up debt. Sarah and I are in the process of looking for another car because Abby is now 16, and, and we went to you know, get our credit checked, and the people were just like sort of amazed. They're like, we've never seen a credit score like that. And they're like, well, you know, if you just don't get debt, you know, it tends to work that way. Don't spend more than you have. 
And that's pragmatic, but it's also theological. Why would it be wrong for a Christian to spend beyond their means? Well, well think about it. Who is it that, that determined the, the lines? Who is it that, that determined what should be entrusted to you? It was God, was it not? And when we live beyond our means, we are calling God's wisdom and goodness into question. We're saying, God, you didn't get this right. You owed me more, and I'm going to, to take it. And so we begin by simply being content with what we have, by not living beyond our means. But there's a second principle that I think we need to hear because as, as Christians, as those who are called to be faithful, not only does being faithful mean not living beyond your means, it also means not living at the end of your means. You know, you can never go beyond your means and yet still spend everything on you. You know, do it wisely, do it with financial you know, uh, scrupulousness, and yet still spend it all on you. And we are called as believers to be generous givers. So yes, we do spend part of what we make on ourselves. I want you to be clear, I do not believe in vows of poverty. I don't even really believe in vows of simplicity. You know, if you're just a simple person, that's the way you like to live, that's that's great. But that's not what we are necessarily called to. There have been times where different Christians have said, you know, know, set yourself a a line just above the poverty line and give away everything else above that. I I don't think that's necessarily wise. If If that's good for you, go for it. You know, uh, but I don't think every Christian is called to that. In fact, I think the prosperity of your neighbors depends in some sense on you participating in the economy. And we can, you know, talk about economics later, but, but spending your money is one way, not the only way, but it's one way that you actually love your neighbor and, and uh, advance their common good. But as much as participating in the economy is good, we ought not to be spending everything. Again, listen to what Paul says to the thief. He says, let the thief no longer steal but let him do something useful with his hands so that he might eat his own bread and have something to give. Right? And so that he might have something to to give to those in need. We are called upon to give generously. So it means not living beyond your means, but it also means not living at the end of your means. It means having something left over to to give. And and there are at least two primary ways that the scriptures talk about our giving. We can give to the work of the gospel. We can give to the work of the church. We can can give to where uh, the gospel is being proclaimed. You do that when you tithe and you give to the church. This is a a word ministry. And when you support the work of Trinity, you are are supporting us in our mission to make disciples of of Jesus Christ through the spirit-empowered ministry of the word. And, And when you support others, Sarah and I support a, a couple of missionaries. We support a couple of other organizations that also focus in uh, word ministry, preaching the gospel, proclaiming Christ in order to present everyone mature in him. And so we, we give, and Paul calls those who give to such ministries partners in the gospel. And we have a, a chance to, to send a group to Alaska. All of you can't go. We have a chance to send a group to St. Louis. All of you can't go. Now, more of you can go, and they kind of hope more of you will sign up. But not all of us can go, but we can all support the ministry. We can give generously. And not only do we give to the work of the gospel, we also give to the good, the common good, of our neighbors. Again, you can do this through the church. When you give to the diaconate, you are serving the common good of those in our our community as we seek to serve those in need either in our congregation or in our community. But you can also do it by supporting other organizations in town. We we have a list of them on the back of the bulletin, organizations that we would suggest, places like the Refuge and the, the Caring Place. These are organizations that we partner with because they are doing good. 
And you can give generously to to these types of organizations. And so the two main ways that we give are we give to the ministry of the word and we give to the good of our community, the good of our neighbors. And we give generously and we give cheerfully. Cheerfully. The, the Bible doesn't command us to give begrudgingly. It commands us to give to cheerfully, to delight in the fact that we have the opportunity to invest what isn't ours anyway in being a blessing to others. This is what it means to be faithful. We use what we have here, what has been entrusted to us, what we are stewards of. We, we use it, yes, to, to provide for our own livelihood so that we can do the work that benefits but also to to give the surplus so that the ministry of the word might go forth and so that the common good of our neighbors might be served. This is what we're called to. This is handling money with an eternal perspective. But if you're honest, you admit this doesn't come naturally. It's like, how do we we learn to, to do that? How do we learn to do that? I think Jesus gives us two clues here. The first is that we simply must meditate upon the true nature of wealth. This is what Jesus does. He's actually calling us to think about these things. He does this especially in his his Sermon on the Mount. Think about what Jesus says. He says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, but rather store up for yourself treasures in heaven. But that's not all he says, is it? He actually gives some rationale, doesn't he? He he explains why you ought to do this. Don't, Don't store up treasures on earth, because moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Here, he, he calls the wealth unrighteous. He says, listen, this is, the, this is the, uh, the wealth of the age to come. Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, com- uh, compares all the wealth of this age to Confederate money in 1864. He says, listen, you know, it, it has some value for a time, but the end is coming. He says, that's wealth. He says, the wealth of this world, it is, it is fleeting. Don't, don't make that your treasure, but rather invest. Store up for yourself treasures on earth. So meditate upon the true nature of treasure. Meditate upon what has been secured for you by the sacrifice of Christ. Meditate upon that eternal weight of glory that is yours. And let it set you free from clinging to the gilded toys of dust that we so often sing about in our hymns. So it begins with meditating. Meditating upon the truth, but then it also uh, continues with practice. Actually do it. Think again about what Jesus says. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Think about what that means. Yes, that means that our treasure goes to where our heart is. But Jesus is actually highlighting the other way around. (laughs) He says, your heart will follow your treasure. (laughs) Where you put your treasure, there your heart will go. And so do you want to develop a heart for missions? Do you want to develop a heart for the work of the gospel? Do you want to develop a heart for the good of your neighbor? Put your money there. Start by just practicing. Even if you don't feel it yet, put your money there and your heart will follow. Because we serve a God who is in the business of transforming us. And he gives us things to do, not so that we can earn his favor, but so that we can grow into the full enjoyment of what has already been secured for us by Christ. He says, do this and I will go to work. Obey me and watch me create. Watch me renew. Watch me change your heart. Where your treasure is, your heart will go. Put your treasure there and your heart will follow. And because we serve a God who can take selfish you know, 
earthly-minded people like us and can turn us into eternally-minded, generous givers. Because He can do that. It's one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness to us. Father God, when we see how far we fall short, we marvel at the grace that You have shown us. And then when we remember that you will not allow us to stay short, Father, but that you will bring us, that you will make us, that you will recreate us, that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus, and that you will not fail to bring to completion the good work that you have begun, Father. When we remember these things, and we remember that you can do this even in the way that we relate to our money, Father, we praise you and we thank you and we ask you to continue that good work for our good and your glory. Take our lives, Father, and mold them as, they, as you would have them to be, that we might know the full joys of your salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.